I said this at the beginning, but if you came in a little late, my name's Josh Firth. I am one of the lay elders here, and we are continuing our summer sermon series in the Psalms um, as we work our way through Psalms of David this summer. Um, We've been through the Psalms a couple of times as a church, but it's just such a rich time for us to do that. Um, We've had a chance to gain a sense of what it means to be us, to be humans, and what it means to look to Jesus for life and breath and satisfaction and joy. And and maybe you didn't know we were going through the Psalms of David in particular, so let me take a quick step back um, and and talk about why that was chosen. Why did we look at David? Um, First, he's ordinary, right? He's just like us overlooked, forgotten. That's, that's how we're introduced to him in the Bible. He's not anything special. And I don't know about you guys, but I think we know that feeling from time to time. Do we matter? Is God there? Can we actually hope in him? And so as such, David stands as this picture of what it means to really be human. But also to be human is to be known and loved by God. That's what we're going to see tonight. And then in spite of David's failings, he's a man after God's own heart. He's made in God's image but he's not after God's own heart because of his faithfulness. It's not impeccable and it's not because he's impeachable, but it's because he actually belongs to God. And so David's all of us trying our best to live in relation to the living God of all things in the actual circumstances we find ourselves in day to day. And then on the other hand, he's an object of God's special calling, right? He is a foreshadow um, of his descendant who would come in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we find that resolve, that um, end of the song that brings it all together for all of the questions of our human struggle and the fulfillment of what we're meant to be. And those things are really heavy. If you're like me, you do or you have wrestled with these huge questions of life. Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I here? And underneath of those, those are really driven by these these deep-seated identity questions. Do I really matter? Does my life have a purpose? If God exists, does he actually care for me individually or even acknowledge that I'm here? And I'm here to tell you that if you struggle with those tonight, Psalm 139 says to every one of those, yes. And there are a few other texts in the Bible that link us as personally and as intimately to the God of all creation. A God who we will see in four very distinct ways is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient and omnicompetent, meaning he could just, he can handle everything. And he, that God, that is all of those things, has fearfully and wonderfully made you. I'm just going to pause there for a second. He made you. He made me. Knowing every one of our days, even before we were formed in our mother's wombs, knowing us and loving us. So at its essence, Psalm 139 is about you and me and God, that we are known and we are loved. So before we read the psalm together, I just want to give you a quick kind of outline of its structure, which will give you an outline of where we're going a little bit. Um, It's four stanzas or four movements of six verses each, where David proclaims a specific truth about the Lord in each one. I actually just mentioned them a second ago. In verses one through six, he talks about God's omniscience, that he knows everything. In verses 7 through 12, he talks about God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. You can't get away from him. Verses 13 through 18, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. And then in verses 19 through 24, he's omnicompetent, meaning he can and will deal with any and every situation that ever arises, any person, anything. 
And this psalm has components of both uh, uh, two different types of psalms, a didactic psalm, meaning it tells us something about God and something about us, and wisdom, which is a psalm that teaches us to cultivate an eternal, long-term mindset. It teaches us to live for the line into eternity and not the dot that's today, right? But at its core, 139 is really dominated by this idea of knowledge. Six different times in the psalm, David's gonna talk about knowledge. Five of these are primarily God's knowledge of us, that he intimately and completely knows us. And one instance of how he translates that to what our souls know in response. And it really plays off something John Calvin once wrote, which is nearly all the wisdom that we possess, true and sound wisdom anyways, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of ourselves. So what we're gonna look at tonight is what does Psalm 139 tell us about God? And it's a lot. And in response, what does that tell us about ourselves? So let's read Psalm 139 together. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is as alive now as it has ever been and ever will be. And we're thankful that you are a God that though you can and know and do anything and everything that you choose to know us, that you have known us before we were ever created, that you loved us then, you love us now, and you will always love us until the time that we are reunited with you in glory. Lord, I pray that tonight 
those truths would pierce us deeply. Father, I pray that the words that your spirit wants to be heard would remain, that they would stay, that they would take deep root in our hearts and flourish and blossom and that all else would fail away. Lord, I thank you for each person here and I pray that you would just speak tonight. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So that idea of knowledge, right? We just went through it and David is expounding in depth about the fact that God knows everything about him. And I couldn't help but think about how does that apply to my life? What about, where have I seen that? And so um, for me, I, I thought about my dad, that he always seemed to be everywhere or know everything I did, especially if it was bad things. I don't know if anybody else ever had that, that perspective or had that experience. Um, maybe it was the perils of growing up in a small town, more cows than people where we lived, so everybody knew everything about you um, and reported back all the time, or just the fact that parents and family give us this really unique insight and glimpse into the nature of our relationship with God the Father. But regardless, all I could think about was like, how did my dad always know? Like the first time I ever ran a red light, he was three cars behind me, right? Um, there's this road that connected the boonies where we live to the main part of town. I wasn't supposed to drive on it. It was very dangerous. People drove badly on it. When it was wet, it was super slick. I mean, just, it just was not a good road. It's called Reed Road. Um, the first accident I ever had, um, which I guess implies there were more than one, and there was. Um, but the first accident I ever had, um, I slid off the road into this farm field. Didn't damage the car, thankfully, but it wouldn't start. I couldn't get it out, so I had to hike like a mile and a half in the rain to a gas station and bum change from somebody for a payphone. For some of you guys, it's a phone that hangs on the wall. You put money in it to make a phone call. Um, and I called my dad, and I was like, hey, I had a wreck on the way back from team practice, and he was like, I told you not to drive down Reed Road. It's literally his first words. And I'm like, you're not even here. How do you know that? Um, and then years later, I was, I was on my way home from college. I had a fender bender on the entrance ramp of Highway 31 North, like right by where the new Target is. Um, just busted like the taillight and like bent up the hood of, my, uh, of the car I was in. I didn't call my parents because at that point I had a bag cell phone, which was the first generation of cell phones that cost like $8 a minute to make a phone call. They plugged into your cigarette lighter. Um, and, and it was supposed to be for emergencies. And I was like, well, I can walk, the car drives. I'm not gonna make a phone call, I'll be fine. I'm going home, I'll just tell them when I get there. I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna tell this news. I'm coming down Highway 75 in North Georgia, about to get off at my exit. And I literally come around a corner and this semi-trailer, like I go past the semi-trailer, and my dad is in the lane right next to me on the interstate. The first thing he sees is the busted car, like right out of his window. And then he just pulls up next to me, and he's like yelling through the window. And I was like, I mean, how does he know? How are you always there? I don't get it. I mean, GPS didn't even exist at this point. But now I do it to a degree with my own kids. Um, so I have three boys. Um, the good part for me is I can just say he, and it doesn't give away who, um, one of them, I can just look at him and I can tell what he's thinking. And I think he kind of likes it, but he also kind of hates it. I would too. Cause I know, I know how he thinks. I know the impulse that's driving him. Sometimes I can be like, don't do that thing you're about to do. Don't do it. Don't say that thing you're about to say. Cause I know you, I know him and my dad knew me. But what we see is how these earthly comparisons just pale through Psalm 139 in the way that God knows us. 
They're just a shadow, right? So let's look at this first stanza in verses one through six and note the verb action. Like, I'm not gonna read it all again. I'm just gonna talk about the verbs that, that, that David uses here. As David's speaking, verse one, that God searches and has known. He has searched and known us. In verse two, he knows and he understands our actions and our thoughts. In verse three, he searches out our paths. One translation says he winnows our lair. That is, he analyzes and critically assesses our life and our home, the place that we feel the most comfortable, the place that we are the most maybe ugly from time to time. He knows that. It's not hidden from him. Verse four, he knows every word before we utter it. Verse five, he hymns us in. He surrounds us. He is all around us at all time, right? These aren't, this isn't like a detective on a show that goes in and like observes clues and just intuits and picks up the scene. It's intimate. God knows. Like the, the biggest, deepest definition of the word know and knowledge you can think of, that's what God knows of you. And even that pales in what he actually knows. Everything about us is known, our hearts, our character, our actions, our words, our future. And I don't know about any of you, but that depth of being truly known, if I'm really, really honest, it's what I want. It's what I desire. It's what my soul wants more than anything. But it is literally the thing that terrifies me the most in the world. Because I don't want you or Jenny or someone to really know, right? And what David's writing here is that God's knowledge of us is personal and active. It's discerning, it's sifting. He searches us out in our hiding places. He knows our minds more closely than we know them ourselves. He surrounds us and handles us. And he knows so intimately in that way that is scary, but he still loves us. So it's no wonder that David responds in the way that he does. Like if I think about it, it makes sense that David would respond like he does in verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I can't attain it. But I'll be really honest with you guys, like I love Psalm 139. When, it, when I found out that's the, the, the week I was gonna be teaching, I was like, awesome, that's one of my favorite Psalms. And literally like a minute later, I was like, oh no, I, I, don't, I don't wanna teach that. Because my response is not David's response. My response is not wonder in what God can do. My response is, how do I get away? How do I get away from that? How do I escape from that type of like intimacy and knowledge? Because I don't want that kind of vulnerability at the end of the day. Which really leads us into the second movement here in verse 12, verses seven through 12. This is actually one of my favorite pieces of Old Testament poetry this impulse to flee from God the way that David describes it and it's written out, it's not a new thing. Running from God isn't new, just FYI. It starts in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, when God comes in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve hide, right? It starts there, it starts with the fall. And since then, we have all been running and hiding, but we can't, it's ridiculous because David's gonna expound here on the breadth of the Lord's presence, his omnipresence and his attentiveness to us in every place and circumstance, right? Look at the Psalm, it says, if I go to heaven, he's there. If I go to Sheol, he's there. If I take the wings of the morning to the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, 
in, in, in Hebrew language and the way that works, what he's really saying is like, if I went as far to the east as I could possibly go, and if I went to the sea, which in, in Hebrew culture was the sea was the west, if I went as far west as I could go, wouldn't matter, I can't get away, you're there. If I go to the darkest place, the greatest hiding spot in the world, the ultimate hide and seek champ, God's there. He knows us and he loves us and he's always with us even when we don't want him to be. We can't escape him. And we've all tried. I know I have. I tried this week, multiple times in prepping this sermon. But verse 10 tells us, even there, anywhere, your hand shall lead me, right? He's giving direction. And your right hand shall hold me. He's giving protection. Even when we don't want it, he's still leading us and he's still protecting us. And so for me, the way I'm wired, as I think through this Psalm, I don't know about the rest of you guys, so I am an an eight on the Enneagram. um, And that's the challenger. Um, And so um, one of the things that sometimes I have to work through is the way that I learn things is I ask questions. So people say things and I'm like, why, 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 why? Tell me about that. Why can't it be like that? How about more of that? Have you thought about this? And it's not because I want to challenge them. It's literally just the way that I want to glean information so that then I can understand. For some people, that's really stressful. Um, That doesn't go well for them. Um, And so... (laughs) This was one of those moments where like, I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, God knows everything about me. I can't get away from him. Even as I try, he still loves me and he's there leading me, giving me direction and giving me protection. And so for me, it begged the question of why? Why does he care or love or want me or us in this way? And we find this answer in the third stanza or the third movement of the Psalm, right? We start in verse 13 that God formed us, our inward parts, and knit us together in our mother's wombs. Jeremiah will expand on that, and he'll say in verse, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, that before God formed us in the womb, he knew us, right? Just, just think about that for a minute. If that doesn't kind of rock your world or blow your mind, come see me after service because I need to understand why. God saw us, and he loved us before he made us, And as he made us, and he loves us still, and he will love us into the future. His power and his omnipotence, his spoken word, his ability to do anything, he knit and wove us together in the darkness of the womb. Before our moms were even pregnant, he was shaping and planning for us, for you, for me, for your family, for your kids, for your fiance or your husband or your wife. He was laying out the particulars of your life and my life. And he cared about us from the beginning to the present and into the future. And it isn't just that he uses his power to put us together. And it isn't just that he uses his omnipotence to create us and to plan for us, and, but he sustains us. In college, I I discovered this passion for ceramics. Um, I have a major in biology, which I don't use, and a minor in fine art, which I love. Um, And when you are a fine art minor or major um, at Sanford, at least, you have to pick an art expression of of, um, 
focus, painting, drawing, sculpture, design, and I chose ceramics. Um, it just happened to be that I got into it one semester, uh, something dropped, I had to get into something else, I chose that, and I, I just happened to be naturally pretty good at it and loved it. Um, I lived in the ceramics lab. I mean, like if I wasn't doing, if I wasn't working, I was there all the time. Um, specifically throwing clay on a, on a potter's wheel. So most of you guys are probably familiar with that concept. Maybe you've tried it yourself. Um, but you take this lump of clay, right? This lump of dirt, it's got the right amount of moisture in it to hold together and you push it and you pull it and you cajole it and you plead with it and you swear at it a lot and you hope that it turns into something. You hope it turns into something beautiful and functional. Maybe it's a, a beautiful porcelain bowl. That's my favorite thing to make. And once you're done, you fire it, you bake it in this kiln, it's a giant oven, and it hardens, but it's not done. It's brittle, it's beautiful, but it's not really functional and it still needs work. So then you glaze it to protect it, but also to give it its final function, to make it useful and to give it color and beauty. And then you're done. It really doesn't need anything else from you at that point. You can put it on the shelf, put flowers on it, eat out of it, if you use the right glaze, but you're done. It doesn't need you anymore. It just exists on its own. But our existence isn't like that. It's not how God made us and everything around us. See, God made the world and all the things in it and the very act of speaking the world into existence, eventually including you and me and everyone in this room, he took up this power, this work of sustaining us. He's not, we, we are not the bowl that gets set on the shelf and he doesn't need us anymore. We don't need him anymore. We're held together, everything around us is held together by him, by his power in every single moment. So I'm gonna borrow from Busby's Instagram account a few months ago. It's great, if you don't follow it, you should. Um, but think about this for a minute, because it struck me, before I even knew I was preaching the psalm, like it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. For the world, or for us, for you, for me, to stop existing or decease, God doesn't actually have to do anything. He has to stop doing everything. Right? It wasn't that he just made us. He sustains everything around us and us at every moment, every day. That's the commitment he made his, especially to us as humans, his most prized possession is to know us and to love us, not less or more based on what he knows or what we do, but with absolute fullness forever and always and to hold us together always. And in response, our souls should want to praise him the natural response in the face of that, that fullness of love should be a not longing to acknowledge and praise him because nothing we are is hidden from him and he has the power to do everything. And so David says in verse 14, wonderful are his works, our souls know it very well. Like built into us is a natural response. It's there. You, you, don't, you don't get to create it. Like our souls are naturally wired to respond to God in a unique and particular way when we feel his presence and we feel him sustaining us and we feel his power and his presence around us, 
our soul want, craves that and wants to latch on to him and wants to respond to him. And then out of that, we want him to act, right? And that's where David goes in this fourth and final movement in verses 19 through 24. After this praise and adoration of God's knowledge and his presence and his power, acknowledging all of these characteristics that he's great, good, just, and righteous, that nothing's beyond his knowledge, his presence, his power, David prays that the Lord would take all of that and apply it, apply his fulsome competency to the moral order, just the order of David's life. So what happens when you leave your notes from the first service down here. He pleads with God to judge those who do great evil. But in that same breath, he then asks God to also search his own heart to try him and to know him. One of the commentators reading said, it's called a, they, he called it a perilous prayer. And I would firmly agree with that, right? David's asking for God to judge, to come and act on the evil he sees around him. But there's also this great humility because he turns right around and he says, but God, I want you to search my heart and try me as well. And if there's something grievous in me, root it out. And what really hit me, and maybe it's you guys too, is I thought about my prayer life and how often do I pray for God to deal with other people or deal with my circumstances or change something that needs to be changed, including people or the, but, but how often do I skip over the misdeeds of my own heart? And how many times do I not turn an inward gaze and pray for him to work there? See, David isn't just asking for judgment on those who sin against the Lord. He knows his own sin as well, and he knows that apart from God's saving grace, that judgment is also his, right? It's a both and and not a them, us. Because Jesus didn't come to save them. He came to save you. He came to save us and create that opportunity for redemption and reconciliation with him on the cross to be reconciled back to God the Father. And so I would challenge us, just like I felt challenged this week, that apart from God's saving grace and his mercy and his faithfulness to us, we can't be sustained. We don't get to pick and choose what God knows, what he sees, how he acts. We would be bound by the grievous ways in us, just like verse 24 says, but God made a way. And that way leads us to this table. And so here at Grace, we take communion each week because we know it as a means of grace to us. Instituted by Jesus, right, on the night that he was betrayed and as a sign and a seal of Christ's work for us. And we come to this table every week to celebrate and remember the work of Jesus' past, to receive grace from Christ for today, and to look forward right, as a looking ahead to the consummate fulfillment that Jesus will make all things new. Father God, we just pray, Lord, that in this moment as we come together that you would work in peculiar and unique ways in our hearts. Father, that as we remember the work of your past, as we ask for grace for this moment, as we look ahead to what we know you will do, Father, that in this moment you would bind us together, 
that we would rest in the assurance of who you are, what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do, and that we as a people would remember. We pray all this in the strong and mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.